Stories, fables, ghostly tales. The creature of the night. The shadow that walks in your silhouette, echoing your every step. Two glistening ebony spikes flash before your eyes, and your heart stops, and perhaps a new life begins, if you can call it that. Welcome, my denizens of the dark, to your next episode, Dracula Part 4. We've witnessed only a drop in the blood ocean of what he is capable of, and now we discover what is hiding behind those doors of the Transylvanian prison that keeps Jonathan Harker entrapped. So, my lovelies, turn off the lights, turn up the sound, and never let them bite. Later, I endorse the last words written. By this time there is no doubt in question. I shall not fear to sleep in any place where he is not. I have placed the crucifix over the head of my bed. I imagine that my rest is thus freer from dreams, and there it shall remain. When he left me, I went to my room. After a little while, not hearing any sound, I came out and went up the stone stair to where I could look out towards the south. There was some sense of freedom in the vast expanse, inaccessible though it was to me, as compared with the narrow darkness of the courtyard. Looking out on this, I felt that I was indeed in prison, and I seemed to want a breath of fresh air, though it were of the night. I am beginning to feel this nocturnal existence tell on me. It is destroying my nerve. I start at my own shadow, and I'm full of all sorts of horrible imaginings. God knows that there's ground for my terrible fear in this accursed place. I looked out over the beautiful expanse, bathed in soft yellow moonlight till it was almost as light as day. In the soft light the distant hills became melted, and the shadows in the valleys and gorges of velvety blackness. The mere beauty seemed to cheer me up. There was peace and comfort in every breath I drew. As I leaned from my window, my eye was caught by something moving, a story below me, and somewhat to my left. Where I imagined, from the order of the rooms, that the windows of the Count's own room would look out. The window at which I stood was tall and deep, stone maloined, and though weather-worn, was still complete. But it was evidently many a day since the case had been there. I drew back behind the stonework, and looked carefully out. What I saw was the Count's head coming out from the window. I did not see the face, but I knew the man by the neck and the movement of his back and arms. In any case, I could not mistake the hands which I had had so many opportunities of studying. I was at first interested and somewhat amused. For it is wonderful how small a matter will interest and amuse a man when he is a prisoner. But my very feelings changed to repulsion and that dreadful terror when I saw the whole man slowly emerge from the window and began to crawl down the castle wall over that dreadful abyss, face down, with his cloak spreading out around him like great wings. At first I could not believe my eyes. I thought it was some trick of the moonlight, some weird effect of shadow. 
but I kept looking, and it could be no delusion. I saw the fingers and toes grasp the corners of the stones, worn clear off the mortar by the stress of years, and by thus using every projection and inequality moved downwards with considerable speed, just as a lizard moves along a wall. What matter of man is this? Or what matter of creature is it in the semblance of man? I feel the dread of this horrible place overpowering me. I am in fear, in awful fear, and there is no escape for me. I am encompassed about with terrors that I dare not think of. 15th of May Once more have I seen the Count go out in his lizard fashion. He moved downwards in a sidelong way, some hundred feet down, and a good deal to the left. He vanished into some hole or window. When his head had disappeared, I leaned out to try and see more, but without avail. The distance was too great to allow a proper angle of sight. I knew he had left the castle now, and thought to use the opportunity to explore more than I had dared to as yet. I went back to the room and, taking a lamp, tried all the doors. They were all locked, as I'd expected, and the locks were comparatively new. But I went down the stone stairs to the hall where I had entered originally. I found I could pull back the bolts easily enough and unhook the great chains, but the door was locked and the key was gone. That key must be in the Count's room. I must watch should this door be unlocked so that I may get it and escape. I went on to make a thorough examination of the various stairs and passages and to try the doors that opened from them. One or two small rooms near the hall were open, but there was nothing to see in there except old furniture, dusty with age and moth-eaten. At last, however, I found one door at the top of the stairway which, though it seemed to be locked, gave a little under pressure. I tried it harder and found that it was not really locked, but that the resistance came from the fact that the hinges had fallen somewhat and the heavy door rested on the floor. Here was an opportunity which I might not have again. So I exerted myself, and with many efforts forced it back so that I could enter. I was now in a wing of the castle further to the right than the rooms I knew, and a story lower down. From the windows I could see that the suite of rooms lay along to the south of the castle. The windows of the end room looked out both west and south. On the latter side, as well as to the former, there was a great precipice. The castle was built on the corner of a great rock, so that on the three sides it was quite impregnable, and great windows were placed here where sling or bow or culvern could not reach, and consequently light and comfort, impossible to a position which had to be guarded, were secured. To the west was a great valley, and then rising far away, great jagged mountains fastness rising peak on peak, the sheer rock studded with mountain ash and thorn, whose roots clung in cracks and crevices and crannies of the stone. This was evidently the portion of the castle occupied by the ladies in bygone days, for the furniture had more air of comfort than any I had seen. The windows were curtainless, and the yellow moonlight flooding in through the diamond panes enabled one to see even colours, whilst it softened the wealth of dust which lay over all and disguised in some measure the ravages of time and the moth. My lamp seemed to be of little effect in the brilliant moonlight, but I was glad to have it with me, for there was a dread loneliness in this place, 
which chilled my heart and made my nerves tremble. Still, it was better than living alone in the rooms which I had come to hate from the presence of the Count, and after trying a little to school my nerves, I found the soft quietude come over me. Here I am, sitting at a little oak table, where in old times some fair lady sat to pen, with much thought and many blushes, her ill-spent love letter, and writing in my diary in shorthand all that has happened since I closed it last. It is 19th century up to date with a vengeance, and yet unless my senses deceive me, the old centuries had powers of their own which mere modernity cannot kill. Later, the morning of 16th May. God, preserve my sanity, for to this I am reduced. Safety and the assurance of safety are things of the past. Whilst I live on here, there is but one thing to hope for, that I may not go mad, if indeed I be not mad already. If I be sane, then surely it is maddening to think that of all the foul things that lurk in this hateful place, the Count is the least dreadful to me. That to him alone I can look for safety, even though this be only whilst I can serve his purpose. Great God, merciful God, let me be calm, for out of that way lies madness indeed. I begin to get new lights on certain things which have puzzled me. Up to now I never quite knew what Shakespeare meant when he made Hamlet say, My tablets, quick, my tablets! Tis meet that I put it down. Etc. For now, feeling as though my own brains were unhinged, or as if the shock had come which must end its undoing, I turned to my diary for repose. The habit of entering accurately must help to soothe me. The Count's mysterious warnings frightened me at the time. It frightens me more now when I think of it. For in future he has a fearful hold upon me. I shall fear to doubt what he may say. When I had written in my diary and had fortunately replaced the book and pen in my pocket, I felt sleepy. The Count's warning came into my mind but I took a pleasure in disobeying it. The scent of sleep was upon me, and with it the obstinacy which springs as outrider. The soft moonlight soothed, and the wide expanse without giving a scent of freedom, which refreshed me. I determined not to return tonight to the gloom-haunted rooms, but to sleep here, where, of old, ladies had sat and sung and lived sweet lives, whilst their gentle breasts were sad for their menfolk away in the midst of remorseless wars. I drew a great couch out of its place near the corner, so that as I lay I could look at a lovely view to east and south, and unthinking of and uncaring for the dust, composed myself for sleep. I suppose I must have fallen asleep. I hope so, but I fear, for all that followed was startlingly real. So real that now sitting here in the broad, full sunlight of the morning, I cannot in the least believe that it was all sleep. I was not alone. The room was the same, unchanged in any way since I came into it. I could see along the floor. In the brilliant moonlight, my own footsteps marked where I had disturbed the long accumulation of dust. In the moonlight opposite me was three young women, ladies by their dress and manner. I thought at the time that I must be dreaming when I saw them, for though the moonlight was behind them, they drew no shadow on the floor. They came close to me, and looked at me for some time, and then whispered together. 
Two were dark and had high aquiline noses, like the Count, and great dark piercing eyes that seemed to be almost red when contrasted with the pale yellow moon. The other was fair, as fair as can be, with great wavy masses of golden hair and eyes like pale sapphires. I seemed somehow to know her face and to know it in connection with some dreamy fear. But I could not recollect at the moment how or where. All three had brilliant white teeth that shone like pearls against the ruby of their voluptuous lips. There was something about them that made me uneasy. Some longing and at the same time some deadly fear. I felt in my heart a wicked, burning desire that they would kiss me with those red lips. It is not good to note this down, lest someday it should meet Mina's eyes and cause her pain. But it is the truth. They whispered together, and then they all three laughed. <laughs> Such a silvery, musical laugh. But as hard as though the sound never could have come through the softness of human lips, it was like the intolerable, tingling sweetness of water glasses when played on by a cunning hand. The fair girl shook her head coquettishly, and the other two urged her on. One said, Go on, you are first and we shall follow. Yours is the right to begin. The other added, He is young and strong. There are kisses for us all. I lay quiet, looking out under my eyelashes in an agony of delightful anticipation. The fair girl advanced, and bent over me till I could feel the movement of her breath upon me. Sweet it was in one sense, honey sweet, and sent the same tingling through the nerves as her voice, but with a bitter underlying the sweet, a bitter offensiveness as one smells in blood. I was afraid to raise my eyelids, but looked out and saw perfectly under the lashes. The girl went on her knees and bent over me, simply gloating. There was a deliberate voluptuousness which was both thrilling and repulsive, and she arced her neck and actually licked her lips like an animal, till I could see in the moonlight the moisture shining on the scarlet lips and on the red tongue as it lapped the white sharp teeth. Lower and lower went her head as the lips went below the range of my mouth and chin and seemed about to fasten on my throat. Then she paused, and I could hear the churning sound of her tongue as it licked her teeth and lips, and I could feel the hot breath on my neck. Then the skin of my throat began to tingle as one's flesh does, when the hand that is to tickle it approaches nearer, nearer. I could feel the soft, shivering touch of the lips on the super-sensitive skin of my throat and the hard dents of two sharp teeth, just touching and pausing there. I closed my eyes in a languorous ecstasy and waited, waited with beating heart. But at that instant, another sensation swept through me as quick as lightning. I was conscious of the presence of the Count and of his being as if lapped in a storm of fury. As my eyes opened involuntarily, I saw his strong hand grasp the slender neck of the fair woman and with giant power draw it back. The blue eyes transformed with fury, the white teeth champing with rage. 
and their fair cheeks blazing red with passion. But the Count, never did I imagine such wrath and fury, even to the demons of the pit. His eyes were positively blazing. The red light in them was lurid, as if the flames of hellfire blazed behind them. His face was deathly pale, and the lines of it were hard like drawn wires. The thick eyebrows that met over the nose now seemed like a heaving bar of white, hot metal. With a fierce sweep of his arm, he hurled the woman from him, and then motioned to the others as though he were beating them back. It was the same imperious gesture that I had seen used to the wolves. In a voice which, though low and almost in a whisper, seemed to cut through the air and then ring round the room, he said, How dare you touch him, any of you? How dare you cast eyes upon him when I had forbidden it? Back, I tell you all, this man belongs to me. Beware how you meddle with him, or you will have to deal with me. The fair girl, with a laugh of rabbled coquetry, turned to answer him. You yourself never loved. You never love. On this, the other women joined, and such a mirthless, hard, soulless laughter rang through the room that it almost made me faint to hear. It seemed like the pleasure of fiends. Then the Count turned, after looking at my face attentively, and said in a soft whisper, Yes, I too can love. You yourselves can tell it from the past. It is not so? Well now, I promise you that when I am done with him, you shall kiss him at your will. Now go, go. I must awaken him, for there is work to be done. Are we to have nothing tonight? Said one of them, with a low laugh, as she pointed to the bag which she had thrown upon the floor, and which moved as though there were some living thing within it. For answer, he nodded his head. One of the women jumped forward and opened it. If my ears did not deceive me, there was a gasp and a low wail, as of a half-smothered child. The women closed round, whilst I was aghast with horror. But as I looked, they disappeared, and with them the dreadful bag. There was no door near them, and they could not have passed me without my noticing. They simply seemed to fade into the rays of the moonlight and pass out through the window, for I could see outside the dim, shadowy forms for a moment before they entirely faded away. Then the horror overcame me, and I sank down into unconsciousness. Chapter 4 Jonathan Harker's journal continued. I awoke in my own bed. If it be that I had not dreamt, the Count must have carried me here. I tried to satisfy myself on the subject, but could not arrive at any unquestionable result. To be sure, there were certain small evidences, such as that my clothes were folded and laid by in a manner which was not my habit. My watch was still unwound, and I am rigorously accustomed to wind it, for the last thing before going to bed, and many such details. But these things are no proof, for they may have been evidences that my mind was not as usual, and for some cause or another, I had certainly been much upset. I must watch for proof. Of one thing I am glad, if it was that the Count carried me here and undressed me, 
He must have been hurried in his task, for my pockets are intact. I am sure this diary would have been a mystery to him, which he would not have brooked. He would have taken or destroyed it. As I look round this room, although it has been to me so full of fear, it is now a sort of sanctuary, for nothing can be more dreadful than those awful women who were, who are, waiting to suck my blood. 18th May I have been down to look at that room again in daylight, for I must know the truth. When I got to the doorway at the top of the stairs, I found it closed. It had been so forcibly driven against the jamb that part of the woodwork was splintered. I could see that the bolt of the lock had not been shot, but the door is fastened from the inside. I fear it was no dream, and must act on this surmise. 19th May I am surely in the toils. Last night the Count asked me in the suavest tones to write three letters, one saying that my work here was nearly done, and that I should start for home within a few days, another that I was starting on the next morning from the time of the letter, and the third that I had left the castle and arrived at Bistritz. I would fain have rebelled, but felt that in the present state of things it would be madness to quarrel openly with the Count whilst I was so absolutely in his power, and to refuse would be to excite his suspicion and to arouse his anger. He knows that I know too much, and that I must not live, lest I be dangerous to him. My only chance is to prolong my opportunities. Something may occur which will give me a chance to escape. I saw in his eyes something of that gathering wrath, which was manifest when he hurled that fair woman from him. He explained to me that posts were few and uncertain, and that my writing now would ensure ease of mind to my friends. And he assured me with so much impressiveness that he would countermand the latter letters, which would be held over at Bistritz until due time, in case chance would admit of my prolonging my stay. That to oppose him would have been to create new suspicion. I therefore pretended to fall in with his views, and asked him what date I should put on the letters. He calculated a minute and then said, The first should be June 12, the second June 19, and the third June 29. I now know the span of my life. God help me! 28th of May There is a chance of escape, or at any rate of being able to send word home. A band of Zgani have come to the castle and are encamped in the courtyard. These Zgani are gypsies. I have notes of them in my book. They are peculiar to this part of the world, though allied to the ordinary gypsies all over the world. There are thousands of them in Hungary and Transylvania who are almost outside all law. They attach themselves as a rule to some great noble or boyar and call themselves by his name. They are fearless and without religion save superstition, and they talk only their own varieties of the Romani tongue. I shall write some letters home, and shall try to get them to have them posted. I have already spoken to them through my window to begin acquaintanceship. They took their hats off and made obeisance and many signs, which, however, I could not understand any more than I could their spoken language. I have written the letters. Mina's is in shorthand, and I simply ask Mr. Hawkins to communicate with her. To her I have explained my situation, but without the horrors which I may only surmise. I would shock and frighten her to death were I to expose my heart to her. Should the letters not carry, 
then the Count shall not yet know my secret or the extent of my knowledge. I have given the letters. I threw them through the bars of my window with a gold piece, and made what signs I could to have them posted. The man who took them pressed them to his heart and bowed, and then put them in his cap. I could do no more. I stole back to the study and began to read. As the Count did not come in, I have written here. The Count has come and sat down beside me, and said in his smoothest voice as he opened two letters, Miss Sagani have given me these, of which, though I know not whence they come, I shall, of course, take care. See? He must have looked at it. One is from you, and to my friend Peter Hawkins, the other. Here he caught sight of the strange symbols as he opened the envelope, and the dark look came into his face, and his eyes blazed wickedly. The other is a vile thing, an outrage upon friendship and hospitality. It is not signed. Well, so it cannot matter to us. And he calmly held letter and envelope in the flame of the lamp till they were consumed. Then he went on. The letter to Hawkins that I shall of course send on, since it is yours. Your letters are sacred to me. Your pardon, my friend, that unknowingly I did break the seal. Will you not cover it again? He held out the letter to me and, with a courteous bow, handed me a clean envelope. I could only redirect it and hand it to him in silence. When he went out of the room, I could hear the key turn softly. A minute later, I went over and tried it, and the door was locked. When, an hour or two after the Count came quietly into the room, his coming awakened me, for I had gone to sleep on the sofa. He was very courteous and very cheery in his manner, and seeing that I had been sleeping, he said, So, my friend, you are tired. Get to bed. There is the surest rest. I may not have the pleasure to talk tonight, since there are many labors to me. But you will sleep, I pray. I passed to my room and went to bed, and strange to say, slept without dreaming. Despair has its own calms. 31st of May. This morning when I awoke, I thought I would provide myself with some papers and envelopes from my bag, and keep them in my pocket, so that I might write in case I should get an opportunity. But again a surprise, again a shock. Every scrap of paper was gone and with it all my notes, my memoranda, relating to railway and travel, my letter of credit, in fact all that might be useful to me were I once outside the castle. I sat and pondered a while, and then some thought occurred to me, and I made search of my portmanteau, and in the wardrobe where I had placed my clothes, the suit in which I had travelled was gone, and also my overcoat and rug. I could find no trace of them anywhere. This looked like some new scheme of villainy. And this is where we'll stop for today's episode. Well, well, looks like Dracula is tightening his grip. Like a thumbscrew, my little lovelies, one small twist at a time. I can almost visualize the castle's doors slowly being closed, and each day, one by one, till the vice-like grip of this castle becomes unbearable for Mr. Harker. 
until he too, like the key to the many doors of this prison, is tucked away and out of sight. Jonathan Harker, that poor soul, he needs to outwit his master, who at this point is simply playing a game, going on with the charade. Perhaps Dracula is enjoying the fiasco, literally playing with his food. I don't for a minute believe that he did not know Jonathan was awake during the encounter with his three vampire brides. He is powerful, very much so, and I would think Dracula could hear his heart rate spike from where he's standing, whilst witnessing these fiends attempt to kiss him. Truly terrifying. But that wasn't how Jonathan described it, did he? There was this unique sense of forbidden desire, a certain longing for a slice of corruption, one that he couldn't really pinpoint, an alluring terror, as I would put it. He's one strong soul though for staying awake for so long, and despite the terror. What has Jonathan walked into, and will he escape? We will see, listeners, we will see. Now it's time for my mythical Patreon supporters, the peeps that power this podcast, my Patreon supporters. First up are the legendary Ode Knight T-Titans, Matthew J. Bauer, Silver Countenance. Ever heard of a man with a silver tongue? The ability to beguile, twist, control, persuade a person into doing their bidding. Matthew J. Bauer is one such man, and yes, Matthew was a name he once knew. A name he cherished before reaching deep across the void, into the realm of the forbidden and all-consuming darkness. Formerly a hunter and trapper, indeed formerly being the binding term here, after traveling throughout the Carpathian Mountains, he found himself wounded after an encounter with a Darkling. Darklings are thick, single-minded black orbs with more teeth than it knows what to do with, and seeing anything pink in the dark wilderness is an invitation to a feast. Matthew fought and barely won, not without tearing a chunk of its flesh with him in his escape. This would be his demise, and the steps that would turn him into a silver countenance. He collapsed from blood loss in the northern mountains, exsanguination taking his life, but the Darkling's blood left a gift, a gift of rebirth. Matthew's body began to change, it began to heal, the moonlight itself repairing fractured bones, mending deep lacerations and repairing dislocated limbs, one pop and click at a time. He became a silver countenance that day, a man with indomitable will, strength to rival an ogre, and the charismatic persuasions of dark magic at his disposal. He has been spotted in the woods of Carpathia, but no one dares venture into the Darkling Forest until they will need him most. But that is another story for another time. Maya, Tess of the Unholy Light The Moonlight Princess of the Damned, bringer of corruption and unrelenting agony. Once she wore the Flag of Light, a figurehead of the people from her town of Cleas, a vocal piece for all that stands for what cleanses corruption and the purity of light. If only she never met the sage that led her town into a hellscape and world of damnation. She made a contract, unknowingly, with such desire to succeed and bring the light to her people, which was wrought with false motivation and a corrupted gift. She wanted to reach more people, convince more to join the fold of their bright light foundation, and accidentally stumbled into the arms of a black sage. Now, to this day, only Tess knows her true motivations, but corruption doesn't have to acquire meaning. It just needs to take hold, tapping into a crack or a splinter in the armor of a once-loved woman, the guardian of a city. She was gifted a sensor, imbued with dark magic but wrapped in the illusion of light. To her eyes, it glistened gold, 
and shone light that would beckon the safety and success of her people. Something she could be proud of to liberate her people and lead them to success. This sensor took her light the night she used it and twisted it into a blighted darkness that saw her filled with a drive that would assault her own town with voided force. Upon touching her sensor, a thick smoke burst from within it, tapping into her love of her people and belief, inverting its nature while strengthened by her desire to cure and convert. That night test would take 2,000 lives, as the smoke crawled through houses, the streets, and walkways of the town's perimeter. To test, she was reaching more people. To test, she was saving souls. And to Tess, she was bringing them freedom. But to the town of Klaas, the populace was torn asunder. People became beasts, men transfigured into darklings, women cursed with the desire for blood, and children nothing more than mindless slaves walking the streets. To this day, Klaas exists and ever grows. It is only a matter of time that Tess seeks more souls to save and lands to corrupt. Solstra, Chrysidius of the Black Rose. Ah yes, the tale of Quistidius, the king-breaker, one who revels in the strife of mankind. A loving touch is what Quistidius possesses and brings to the table pure chaos, one word at a time. She herself is not famous, remaining unknown to all but the darkling kings of this world, but her actions and prowess in the fields of corruption and twisting of humanity is almost second to none. A commander and spy for the darkling king of Retlun, Quisidius wraps her fingers around the throat of every kingdom's king and brings an army down not through slaughter, but through manipulation and control. First she appeals to the king, plants the seeds in his mind that she is different, something special to be owned, to be kept. And this is when she strikes. A simple touch is all it takes and the mind of many are overcome, persuaded by the king and her motives shielded by his praises. As the populace grows, as does her control, and so the people change. They become hateful, drawn to fight each other, and drawn to madness. Her mere presence sparks fights between men and tearing up of friendships. It is in her presence that the Black Roses grow. And in this hatred the land does change, and the people stiffen and perish. Creatures bud from those corpses and vines like soft spindly fingers, wrapping around the halls, gates, and houses of the once bustling populace, Christidius, the Kingbreaker, and the Harvester of Black Rose Hearts, a testament to the corruption of man, through the words of desire and control. I hope you enjoyed your stories today, mates. I did a deep dive into the thoughts of Not Is All As It Seems, and the corruption motif explored in Dracula today. I hope you really enjoy these tales, and they are a slice of some stories that I've written in the past, but never published. Thank you so much, you legends. And I'm so glad I'm back to a point where I can bring you these tales. Ah, oh, so good to be back, mates. And thank you for being so damn awesome. Now, for my brilliant white tea warlords. I own cows, Herdmaster Max. Herdmaster Max is responsible for saving his town, and it was sort of by accident, really. A farmer and cow herder, Max never got into the swing of controlling his cows from wandering into the blightlands around Klaus. He's tried giving them fresh grass, special treats, but the cows, well, they would have none of it. And one moonlit night, Max heard a terrifying screech emanate from over the hills where the blightlands grew. From that scream he saw his cow, Reggie, being attacked by two voidlings. Seeing what was happening, he too screamed, 
forcing the voidlings to see him and his cowherd to run away down the hills. Unbeknownst to him, this pulled 30 darklings across and away from the town's outskirts. Turns out they were part of a darkling envoy. And it was that day that Max saved the town and taught his cows to stay behind the hills of Cleas. Lee Bauer, Mucky Moonshine. As a passionate brewer, Lee did his utmost to keep his town happy with new beer and new flavors at all times. This meant exploring, trying different ingredients, and experimenting with his brew. During his travels, he came across traders and merchants that would otherwise sell average ingredients that he would come across in his own travels. But he met a man selling void seedlings. These seeds are unique in that they are inert. They melt in the warmth of a human hand and are innocuous at best, but fantastic dark ingredients. Now, Lee is not a gambler by any stretch, but had an idea. His town was constantly raided by brigands and heard that void seedlings, when mixed with alcohol, provided a potent punch of strength. And this was the birth of Mucky Moonshine. After dosing up his town as the owner of the tavern called Funky Pear, the men found that they could lift carts with one hand, bend steel by simply gripping it, and punch straight through wooden shields with ease. Mucky Moonshine saved their town from further rage in their city and protected them from the darklings that roamed their mountain plains. Mates, I hope you loved your stories today. A little tongue-in-cheek and a good bit of fun. Thank you so much, mates, for your support, and it's great to be back and thanking you with my stories, written just for you folk. Cheers, mates. And of course, my Earl Grey Enforcers, Chad Warren, Just Heather, Lorraine Crisanto, Paige Marcini, Peter Raffelli, Tasha Moncrief, Christina Boyd, divided by Zero, whose birthday was last Friday. Happy birthday, buddy. Tristan Cassidy, and Dolphin and Cow. Thank all of you for your awesome support. If you know someone that would enjoy this podcast, send me their way. And if you have a couple of seconds spare, I'd love an iTunes review. Your reviews help me find awesome people like you, and you are the exact kind of person that I'd love to have listening to these stories. Now, mate, stay brilliant. I'll catch you Monday for more stories. And as always, till next we meet.